again. Uh, my name is Tad Anderson. If you missed that part earlier in the service, I'm the uh, lead teaching pastor here at the Hub City Church. And on behalf of our church family, we are so glad you're here to worship Jesus this morning with us. Um, this is not in my notes, but I, I just felt compelled to, to say something. Um, I'm, I'm certain that uh, everyone just about in this room has heard about the, man, just the grievous events that are taking place um, across the world from us in uh, in Israel and um, Palestine, the Palestine area there. And so um, I just want you to know um, that, man, it's, uh, it's a great thing to be a Southern Baptist. Uh, we are a Southern Baptist church, if you're unaware. You're like, what? <laughs> we are a Southern Baptist church, if you're unaware. Um, and man, something that Southern Baptists do really well uh, is missions. And so uh, when you give, this is just an add-on to our uh, offering talk that Jason already gave, which was so great, but just want to uh, also let you know, when you give through your local church, um, there are monies distributed to missions agencies, one of which um, is the International Missions Board, um, and there are resources as we speak um, that are being um, sent and used for missional purposes um, there in the in that region and um, gospel resources that are being produced, um, both for Jews and Palestinians, right? I mean, in a, in a situation like this, uh, it's so sad. We see so much arguing and, and bickering about who's right and who's wrong and, and all splitting all those hairs. But as believers, that's really not what we need to be focused on uh, first and foremost. First and foremost, we need to be focused on the fact that this is an opportunity for people to cry out to Christ, to Jesus for salvation, um, and so anyway, just so you know, um, that, that is one of the things that our missions dollars do go uh, to support, again, both through the IMB and uh, Send Relief. Uh, so that's also so doctrinal resources, but also resources for, for help, just physical helps as well. Um, and so just wanted you guys to know that as I'm sure you're um, seeing these news articles that I'm seeing, and it is just absolutely horrific. And so just know um, as Southern Baptists, we are committed you know, to helping however we can to get the gospel to people who need it uh, the very most. So um, anyway, uh, moving on from there, announcements that are actually in my notes here. Uh, first, I just want to celebrate the Fall Fest last week. Man, it was a great time uh, together. Uh, if you missed it, that's okay. We try to do um, some kind of big fellowship together every season of the year, so we will do that again. Um, if you brought chili, thanks so much. It was delicious, and I can say that because I tasted every single one of them. So, um, <clears throat> But one more time for the sake of uh, the bragging rights that were advertised, the Chili King has emerged triumphant, and that is Chad Angel. So, yeah, great work there, Chad. So, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the next uh, and final announcement that I have is our men's camping trip. So, men, uh, we are doing our first ever men's camping trip next month, Friday, November 10th, and uh, we'll do manly stuff together, like build fires and, you know, eat meat and... Uh, we're trying to figure out some kind of activity that won't like hurt our backs or anything, but, but we're, you know, we're, we're working that out. <laughs> but uh, uh, also, uh, our very own Lewis Miller, uh, dear brother, uh, member of the church, will, will be there. He's also the West Regional Catalyst for the Florida Baptist Convention, and so he's going to bring um, an encouraging word to us as men about being the men that God's called us to be. So it's going to be a great time. Uh, guys, if you haven't signed up, do that. Um, there is a small fee of $10 just to secure your spot uh, there, yeah, but it's going to be a great time. Hope you'll do that. You can find the link on Facebook and the Church Center app, or if you're like, what's any of that, then just talk to one of us and we'll get you signed up. So, all right. Well, if you, uh, if you weren't here last week, we just started into a new teaching series based out of the Old Testament book of Genesis. It's called That's Messed Up. And it's focused on the foundational gospel realities of sin and redemption. Last week, um, I started by giving two reasons why we would base an entire series on different aspects of sin. And so, uh, for just for brief review, here's what they are again. Number one, the Bible is one unified story <clears throat> of how God rescues and redeems his people from their sin. Right? That's the point. If you, don't, if you don't get that, then you uh, will really have a hard time grasping the message of Scripture. So that is critical for you to understand. Number two, um, the deeper and more 
comprehensive our understanding of our own sin, the greater our humility and capacity to love Christ and cherish the gospel. Jesus himself says this. He says, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who's been forgiven much loves much. So we want to do our best to wrap our minds around how much we have been forgiven. We've got to talk about sin to do that. And uh, so the way that each week is going to flow is this. We'll, we'll take an instance from some uh, individual or individuals from Genesis. We'll zoom in on them with special attention on some sinful circumstance in their life. We will name it and we will get down uh, into what it tends to look like more generally. And then we'll use that as a framework to examine ourselves. Because the truth is, friends, we do exactly what God's people have always done. There is nothing new under the sun. And then after feeling the weight of that, which can be challenging, I will admit we will run to Christ, and I'll do my very best to bring uh, gospel comfort to those who know that they're sinners in need of a Savior who can rescue and redeem them. Okay, so that's the plan. Uh, and last week we started with Adam and Eve and this concept of hiding from God. But this week uh, we'll move on to Noah. Noah. We all know Noah, right? Noah was a great man of God, the only uh, man in his time who continued to seek the Lord in the midst of a totally crooked generation who the Lord uh, determined to blot out with a worldwide flood. Noah started really well. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he spent the better part of a hundred years building an ark for the preservation of man and animal kind, right? You know the story. His life really became, we're told later in the New Testament, his life became a gospel testament to those around him to flee from sin and to run to God for salvation. And ultimately, uh, no one listened except his family. And so the Lord literally started over. He hit the reset button with Noah and his sons. So that's a pretty uh, high honor. At that point, we read that uh, God blesses Noah and his family after the ark settles. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, just like he had with Adam and Eve in the first beginning. And they make a sacrifice to God in worship. God makes a covenant promise to never destroy Humanity like that again, and it would seem at that point that all is going well until the middle of Genesis chapter 9 when we get to the part of Noah's story that most people tend to leave off or forget. So let's pick that up. Let's read about that uh, in Genesis chapter 9, starting in uh, verse 18. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So, uh, and pretty messed up, right? It's these 11 verses where we realize that, you know, Noah turns out to fit this very common mold that we see consistently throughout Scripture of a leader who is faithful in so many ways, but in the end, who still has his own sinful issues that must be addressed, namely for Noah, drunkenness. And so that's what we'll be talking about today, but even more general, this idea of addiction. As I was considering Noah and his drinking problem, I couldn't help but be reminded of the late Franciscan priest, Brennan Manning, who wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. 
Good news for the bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out. Though he was a devout Christian, he struggled with alcohol for much of his life, and ultimately he died from complications that they say may have been accelerated by his alcohol consumption earlier in life. But in his book, listen to this humble admission he makes about himself. He says, When I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. And admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. So with that, let's pray and let's talk about addiction, yes, but also how it is confronted and undone by the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning humbled by the amazing grace that there is in Jesus. God, we never tire of coming together week after week after week and singing praises in unison unto you for the good news of the gospel that you save sinners from their sin for their joy and for your glory. So, Lord, now as we open your word today and we get into a challenging topic, my prayer is one of desperation. God, who who am I that you would delegate to me this weighty task? I'm not sufficient for these things. But nevertheless, Lord, you are. You are the one who sets captives free, who heals the broken, who forgives sin with divine authority. You are the one who makes sinners into sons with the perfect atonement of your own blood. So my prayer for me, Lord, is help. Help me to speak the truth in love with clarity today. And for those who are here, God, help. Help eyes to be open to sinful addictions that have previously been ignored or explained away. Help to bring repentance by your spirit and, Lord, deliverance for those who cry out and look to you for the rescuing that they need. Sobriety can be contrived, Lord, but true and lasting freedom can only come from you. So please help. It's in Jesus' mighty and merciful name I pray. Amen. Well, in the summer, going into the ninth grade, I distinctly remember uh, having to read the ancient Greek epic poem, Homer's Odyssey. Uh, In the Odyssey, there's an interesting account of these mythical beings called sirens who are often portrayed as beautiful women with entrancing voices, singing songs that lured weary sailors to their death. As the story goes, the sirens' songs promised an escape from the perils of the sea, but they led sailors into treacherous waters along a rocky shoreline, which became the occasion for their destruction. I begin with this recollection because the sirens of the Odyssey can serve as a profound allegory for the enticing allure of sin. They symbolize the seductive nature of behaviors that offer momentary pleasure or relief, but that ultimately lead us away from the path of life, such as the nature of addiction. Proverbs 9, though it doesn't use the language of addiction, seems to speak to this as well and the personification of folly. It says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. 
To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. We see here in this poetic form the the world's invitation into indulgence in God-given pleasures outside of God's design. The woman folly says, stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This sounds a lot like another voice that we heard last week in Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? The serpent, Satan. There's a reason why, you see, he's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, or the ruler of this world. It's because his demonic invention of sin is like a cancer that has infiltrated, infected, and overtaken all of the cultures of the world. Which is why the mantra of the natural man, you've heard it, right, is this. If it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. And, and what is sin if not that, right? As we said last week from Romans chapter 1, sin is the, suppress, the suppression of the knowledge of God and the enthronement of selfish desire. Sin is the rejection of God's perfect morality with his glory at the center in exchange for our own twisted morality with our fleshly gratification at the center. This is sin. And really, from this biblical perspective, all addiction is, is the habitual practice of some sin. Besetting sin, if you will. So let me give you a working definition here for addiction. Addiction is a term that describes sin's voluntary bondage to any substance or experience in hopes that it will provide the comfort or pleasure that only God can. Okay. Now, in order to understand this definition, we have to first understand something about ourselves. Right? God made human beings to be worshipers. Do you know that? He made us to be worshipers. And so worship is intrinsic to us. As inherent as it is for us to breathe, so it is for us to worship. We cannot turn worship off. We can only direct it. It has no neutral gear. Okay, um, In everything that we do, we are, in a sense, bowed down before whatever it is that we ascribe ultimate worth to. You following me? Another way to say it would be to say that our, our hearts all come with a throne that only God was ever meant to sit on. So that in everything that we do, whether it's eating or drinking or working or, or whatever, we're giving our glory and our praise to him. So you see, when we sin, we are metaphorically putting someone or something else on the throne of our hearts. Okay? Because like we said last week, we have a belief problem, don't we? We have a belief problem. As sinners, by default, we don't believe that if we allow God to remain on the throne, that he'll do what's best for us. Though he's the author and the source of all that is good and right, and he's the provider of all pleasure and comfort, because of our fallen condition, we don't trust that if we leave God in control, that he will supply those things to us. In other words, we, we believe the same lie that Adam and Eve believed when they took and ate of the fruit. That maybe, maybe we know better than God. 
Maybe we know better than God what will make us really happy and truly fulfilled. Last week, we talked about how when we do this, it results in shame, which is what leads us to try and hide from God. But the effects of sin are multifaceted. And so another thing that inevitably happens is while we pridefully think that we will be the ones to sinfully use something other than God for our benefit, what ends up happening is that that thing that we think we will use begins to use us. You see, because we're worshipers. We're worshipers. And whatever we put on God's throne begins to exert a godlike influence over us. While what we were after was greater freedom, more comforts or pleasure, what we get is slavery and the inevitable pain and the misery that come along with it. This is why Proverbs 23 warns, it says, Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. This is a warning that to look naively at alcohol as this magical substance that can only do good for us simply because it has the ability to make us feel good for a very brief time. This is to be deceived. This is to be deceived. It may temporarily reduce stress because of its ability to dull our senses and make us forget about the difficulties of life, but to press in and to overindulge in alcohol or any substance in order to experience a mind and mood-altering effect to comfort us when we're afraid or alone, to bring us pleasure as a way to escape from what we ought to be facing head-on. This is to ask alcohol to be what only God can be. And so Proverbs 23 says, beware, beware. It's not the only place where it says beware, but this is a place where it says beware. If you ask a substance like alcohol to be God to you, it will. It will. But it will not be a loving God who helps you. It will be a cruel God that sinks its teeth into you, deals great harm to you, and aims to keep you under its dominion. And so Jesus himself says this as plainly as it can be said in John chapter 8. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And then Paul echoes Jesus in Romans 6, tacking on the natural results. He says, When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness, but What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of all those things is death. And so this is why I've chosen to use the term voluntary bondage to define addiction. Because habitual sin, besetting sin is like this. It enslaves us, but we choose it. It enslaves us but we choose it. I give credit to renowned biblical counselor Ed Welch for this helpful articulation in his book about addiction, a banquet in the grave. He goes on to say, in sin, we're both hopelessly out of control and shrewdly calculating, victimized yet responsible. All sin is simultaneously pitiable slavery and overt rebelliousness. This is a paradox, to be sure, but one that is the essence of all sinful habits. So it's at this point I say that while Noah, Noah becomes the first drunkard that we read about in Scripture, he's far from the last, right? 
And while we go on to read many warnings against the drunkenness that results from the abuse of alcohol, insightful readers will realize that alcohol is not the only thing that someone can get drunk on. It's not the only thing that we can get addicted to. This is not to minimize the element of chemical dependence that affects the body with things like drugs and alcohol. But it turns out there are many substances and experiences that people attempt to use as a means to their comfort and pleasure apart from God. Food, exercise, gambling, shopping, vaping, sex, social media, video games, a host of other things that can all be addictive. Now, I've been slow to make this connection, but undoubtedly some of you are already seeing this correlation here. Addiction is really just a branch of idolatry. It's a branch of idolatry. Well, we'll talk about idolatry later in this series, but for now, just so you understand my rationale, I'm distinguishing the two by calling dependence on substances and experiences addiction, and dependence on people and things, idolatry, okay? The reason I'm splitting the two is because while addiction at its root is idolatry, not all idolatry behaves exactly like addiction. You following that? Okay. If you're not, let me give you three distinguishing factors of addiction. Insatiability irrationality, and isolation. Insatiability, irrationality, and isolation. First, insatiability. The insatiability of addiction is the constant craving for more. The constant craving for more. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied And never satisfied are the eyes of man. This verse communicates the reality that the the soul of man is made for eternity and a connection with the eternal God. And so when we attempt to fill ourselves with temporal things for the sake of comfort and pleasure, it's as though we're feeding a bottomless pit, a black hole. My dad, before he died, would have considered himself a recovering alcoholic. And so I spent countless hours with him in AA meetings growing up. And when he explained to me the nature of his addictive behavior, he said that, he said really, you know, really what many self-diagnosed alcoholics say of their addiction, that it was progressive, progressive. That is, over time, it would take more and more and more alcohol to produce the same result, the same level of inebriation that he was looking for. Part of that is because, yes, the body and God's brilliance does build up a tolerance to things, so to speak, that makes it require more to reach the threshold of drunkenness. But... To say that that is all that is going on in the heart of a so-called alcoholic is to ignore the spiritual nature of what someone who is drinking that much is really trying to do. They're unknowingly seeking divine comfort and pleasure that no substance and no experience can give them. This is the same reason why men and women who are addicted to pornography reportedly spend hours upon hours upon hours clicking and clicking and clicking and looking and looking and looking as though full satisfaction is just just beyond their grasp. It's because, you see, friends, porn addiction is not really just about sex. 
It's looking to sexual images, yes, but it's looking to them to satisfy a deep soul-level longing that they never can. They never can. You see, mankind was created to behold the glory of God, to see and enjoy the pleasure of spiritual intimacy with our creator God. Porn is a sad, sinful, and degrading attempt to fill that spiritual void. Okay. It's also why people who are addicted to food crave just one more helping, even while they've been long full. Right? It's because the hunger they're attempting to satiate is not a physical hunger. It's a spiritual one. That's the insatiability of addiction. Always wanting more and yet seeming to never get enough. And ironically, even after getting more, feeling empty. Right? But that leads to the next identifying aspect of addiction, irrationality. Irrationality. The irrationality of addiction is that eventually the addicted person is confronted with the danger of their actions and the, the harm that it does to self or to others. Or, you know, if it's not uh, a particularly harmful substance, uh, they see that while they're insatiably after it, it's not rendering the satisfying feeling that they think it's supposed to. But even still, they feel as though they can't or won't stop. They can't or won't stop. Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who returns to his folly. People who are addicted to alcohol or drugs are technically aware that they are endangering themselves and others. People who are addicted to food can see themselves in the mirror and they're weight on the scale, and they can hear the warnings of their doctor. People addicted to scrolling their phones eventually realize that they're subconsciously choosing to look at meaningless online content instead of their spouse or their precious children. People addicted to shopping can see their bank account balance dwindling and their credit card debt increasing to a limit that will be near impossible to get out from underneath. People addicted to entertainment, perhaps binge-watching Netflix series, can see their adult responsibilities going undone and their top priorities falling to the wayside. And yet they continue anyway. They press on, excusing their behavior as no big deal or saying it's just their vice and everyone has one or saying, you know, it's really not hurting anyone else when the truth is that it is a big deal and it is affecting others and their irrationality, they've just become blind to it. It's killing them spiritually, maybe even physically. But they're, they're just too busy enjoying a banquet in the grave to realize it. So addiction is accompanied by insatiability, irrationality, and finally, isolation. Those who are addicted, even if in their irrationality they won't face it, will subconsciously begin to pull away from people in order to be alone with their sin. Like Noah, to get drunk in their tent. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. This might look like finding opportunities to leave the house, or come home late, used to love taking trips with my dad. This is a side. He used to love, he lived in Ponte Vedra Beach, and we'd hop in his little Honda Accord, and we'd, 
I'd take a trip with dad, you know, four or five years old. Like, don't have any idea where we're going. It only occurred to me later we were going to ABC Liquor all those times, right? It might look like finding opportunities to leave the house or come home late to drink. Or it might look like staying up late while everyone else is asleep to linger over explicit images. Might look like going into another room or just going into tunnel vision to obsessively scroll Instagram. These are just a few of the top addictive categories, but really, as I said earlier, our sinful hearts can be they can become addicted to many things. Many things. But the way that you know, the way that you know, is it becomes like a secret love affair, really. You start thinking about the next time you can get alone with your mistress. Your mistress might be food, might be marijuana, might be Xanax, might be Amazon Prime, might be Call of Duty, might be romance novels. But whatever it is, you go to it for comfort or pleasure that you know is not from the Lord. It's a kind of voluntary bondage that you're, you're choosing, but that, that has a grip on you, and it won't let go. And so you go back to it again and again. And though it's wrong, you, you rationalize it. Maybe you're rationalizing it in your mind right now. And though it's secretly stealing life from you, you protect it and you keep it around because in a kind of sick way, you've you've grown to love it. Though you know it's capable of hurting those who really love you. And you definitely don't want to talk about it. And so you keep it covered up. This is how you know it's an addiction. Insatiability, irrationality, and isolation. So, what do you do? What do you do if this is you? You're addicted, consumed with some besetting sin. You, you thought you could use it to escape the difficulties of life, but instead you've, you've wound up enslaved and bondage to this, this thing that now feels like it has control over you. Well, here's the first thing that I'll say. I, nor any professional, spiritual, medical, or otherwise, is able to fix the problem that you have. Addictions, you see, are an enslavement of the heart, not a sickness of the body, and thus primarily require a spiritual intervention as opposed to a therapeutic solution. Many people don't like to hear this truth. You see, there's... A whole field of secular addiction recovery that would tell you addiction is a disease. That you're just genetically predisposed. They say this in order to, I mean, I assume they have the best of intentions, but really they say this in order to remove the burden of guilt and excuse addicts as passive victims in their struggle. I'm not saying that deep-seated addiction doesn't feel like a disease. It often does, especially when you're in the throes of it. But the scriptures do not give us the option to deny personal culpability in our habitual sin patterns. In Matthew 15, Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. He's saying that sin is a heart-level issue. And so it comes out of the volitional center of our being. And thus it cannot be remedied with mere behavioral modification, medical advancement, or religious ritual. If it was that easy, no one would be addicted. 
No one would be addicted to destructive, sinful patterns. They would just pull themselves up out of it with sheer willpower. Or they would go through the mystical motions to just make it go away. But anyone who has been caught in sinful addiction knows that it it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way. Rehab may break chemical dependence. A 12-step program may provide support from people who really understand. But true freedom, true freedom from addiction requires deliverance. Deliverance. So as we close, to anyone who knows that they need it, let me offer you a brief, but I believe biblical rundown of the way out. Understand entire books have been written on these things, and you might should read some of them. But these are the big pieces, okay? The the way out of addiction. You ready? Number one, confess it as sin and cry out for rescue. Confess it as sin and cry out for rescue. Church, we often say this here, and we always will. Repentance is not a bad, scary word. Repentance is a beautiful opportunity that we're given from God to turn away from the sins that would otherwise destroy us. And the first piece of repentance is confession. Confession. Admission that your own best judgment has brought you to the brink of utter spiritual ruin. The Psalms are filled with such confessions and cries for rescue. It's hard to choose one, but Psalm 51 is perhaps the most helpful. Listen to what David says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Anybody ever need to pray that prayer? In other words, God help. God help. I need to be rescued and cleansed from my sin. My heart is too polluted and I can't do it. But I know you can. I know you can. David's honesty is key here. He doesn't soften it. He doesn't excuse it. He calls it exactly what it is, and he lays himself out before the mercy of God. In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul gives us a New Testament parallel that many who have been caught in addiction can resonate well with. He says, so I find it to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So if you're here and you're listening to this and you're caught in the cords of addictive sin. Do what scripture models for us. Confess it and cry out to the only one who can deliver. Like St. Augustine, who prayed, Lord, my soul lies in ruins. Won't you rebuild it? There are many things within me that might offend your sight, O God. I admit and recognize them. But who else will purify me? To whom can I cry out except to you? Dear addicted brother or sister, confess your sin like this. 
cry out for rescue. And here's the next piece. You ready? Look to Jesus in faith. Look to Jesus in faith. Now, what I'm about to say is almost so simple that to some it may seem trite and reductionistic, but I assure you it is the only way. I assure you it's the only way. In the Old Testament book of Numbers, God's people have tested God's patience with their complaining one too many times. You've read this story, perhaps. And so God sends venomous snakes into their camp to bite them. And so many of them are dying. And as they're sick and dying, they confess their sin. They cry out to God for his forgiveness and for healing. Listen to what happens. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. Get this. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look. He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, at first, this seems like kind of a strange story, doesn't it? Until you get to the New Testament, and Jesus is kind to give us the clarity of a gospel interpretation. In John 3, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, Jesus says, I'm the bronze serpent. I'm the bronze serpent. That was about me. So are you suffering? Are you suffering in the misery of your sinful choices? Harassed by the fiery serpent of addiction? Don't know the way out, the way of healing, the way of deliverance. Here's the way. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. That's it. You may think, surely there's something I have to do to be delivered. But you see, the gospel message is this. To all who are willing to recognize that they are powerless to stop sinning, hopeless, helpless to affect lasting change in their own lives. Jesus says, just look to me. Just look to me. You don't, you don't need to do anything because you can't do anything. That's the point of faith. You can't do it. Only Jesus can. And he does it all. Some who are still unconvinced, think with me for a moment on all the situations in the Gospels when helpless people came and looked to Jesus, desperate. At the end of their rope, a paralyzed man, a blind, a blind man, a woman with a bleeding disorder, lepers, people with evil spirits, people who are mute and lame, people who are sick, people who are dead. Thank you. Thought about adding that one. Here's the point. When people who know that there is no other means for their redemption. Look to Jesus with great mercy and compassion and the power of God. He says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. And listen, 
It's not the quantity or the quality of their faith that makes them well. It's not the amount or the strength of their faith. These are weak and broken people. It's the object of their faith. It's the object of their faith. It's who their faith is in that makes them well. Faith in Jesus alone brings restoration and redemption. So I told you, to some, this seems too simple, scandalous. And so prideful people, people who still think they can save themselves, need not apply. But to those willing to confess the sin of their addiction and cry out for rescue, lift your eyes to Jesus today. Look to Jesus. (laughs) He and he alone can graciously make you well and set you free. But you see, that's not the final step. After you've confessed, cried out, and looked to Jesus, it's crucial that you realize, you see, Jesus, he doesn't just deliver us out of sin, out of addiction, Out of the kingdom of darkness, he delivers us into holiness, into right living within God's design, into his kingdom of light. He he doesn't just say, your faith has made you well. He says, go and sin no more. (laughs) And so the next step in the path out of addiction is to worship and fight. Worship and fight. You see, the freedom that Jesus gives is not the freedom to do whatever we want. (laughs) That was the freedom we thought we had in sin. We see where that got us. The freedom that Jesus gives is the freedom to live as we were created, to begin worshiping him, to begin putting him back on the throne of our hearts. Where we were once slaves to wickedness and impurity, we become slaves of righteousness who live by the Spirit instead of the flesh, with wisdom instead of folly, being filled with joy instead of shame, serving others instead of gratifying ourselves, all for the praise of the glory of God instead of the sick, twisted allegiance that we were previously giving to idols. We just talked about this a few weeks ago at the end of Ephesians. But this is where the fighting comes in. This is where the fighting comes in. Um, I love the critical distinction that uh, Jason Coulter made in his testimony video a while back. The, The fighting that we do is not fighting for victory. It's fighting from victory. The victory that we've been given in Christ. The timing is important that you understand here. So for all who've been wondering... When is this guy going to get to the actual things we do to combat addiction? I'll be honest, this is not really a sermon about that. But I don't want you to be unaware. While no one is able to fight their way to deliverance, those who have been delivered by faith in Jesus will continue to fight for faith in Jesus. Just like all Christians right? And and make sure you hear what what I'm saying here. Those who have struggled with addiction, your addiction does not define you. Stop calling yourself those things. You're not an alcoholic, a porn addict. Is your faith in Jesus? He defines you. He defines you. You're a son or daughter of God now. Sin has no claim on you anymore. And it's from this mindset that we begin to apply 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. that says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. These, the, the applications of this 
can be as numerous as the different cases and kinds of addiction, okay? But as one dear brother who struggled in the past with alcohol recently told me, he said, it means not going down the beer and wine aisle in Publix. It means not going out with friends who want to drink. It means getting out of situations where you know you're going to run into temptation. Or if you run into temptation, you didn't know it, getting out of those situations. It means having friendships within the church and other circles of support, recovery programs, counseling, and so forth that you can press into when you need help. It means being in the word. It means a life of prayerful dependence. It means being with the body of Christ as often as possible for worship and discipleship and fellowship and mission. So don't hear me saying that because the pathway out of addiction is something that Jesus, in large part, does for you, that it's a cakewalk. It's not. There's fighting involved. This is what fighting, the fighting looks like. It's not rocket science. It's the ordinary means of grace available to and necessary for all believers. Right? So here's the path. Confess your sin, cry out for rescue, look to Jesus, worship and fight, and finally, repeat as necessary. (laughs) Repeat as necessary. Because as the scriptures make clear to us, redemption does not equate to perfection on this side of eternity. Yes, sometimes... Deliverance is radical, particularly with substances whose chemical dependence can be broken and the presence of which can be avoided, okay? But with the recovery from many habitual besetting sins, it often looks like a trajectory of growth that involves some failing, okay? But it involves learning to fall forward, okay? The trajectory doesn't look like this, looks like this. You following me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Proverbs 24, 16 says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. This is the mark of someone who is growing in the process of redemption. Not total sinlessness, but a resolve and a refusal to lay headlong in sin any longer. It's a determination to keep getting back up. Keep getting back up. Keep confessing. Keep repenting. Keep crying out for God's help. Keep remembering to look to Jesus, to do what you can't. Keep worshiping him. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. Clinging to the promise of Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. (laughs) This is the hope of the gospel for those who struggle with drunkenness and addiction. There's deliverance and freedom in Jesus. (laughs) Look to him. Trust him. Cling to him. Let's pray. Father, your grace is so good. I feel like a crazy man up here saying these things. They're so good. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. But God, your grace is that good. Your kindness is that good. In fact, it's your kindness that draws us in and leads us to repentance. So Father, I pray today that for those in this room who have struggled with sinful addiction, God, that they would have just a profound sense of your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Even now, Holy Spirit, would you do that? Draw them out of hiding. Draw them out of isolation. Show them the irrationality of their sinful behavior and cause them to look to you the only one who can deliver. We thank you, Jesus, that you deliver us from our sin. It's in your name we pray. Amen.